Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, if you couldn't tell uh, from the songs, we will be in the book of Psalms looking at some uh, a praise hymn. And uh, it has always been one of my desires to uh, preach on one of the Psalms, um, but it always approach it with some trepidation just because it is a little bit different than preaching from a narrative or an uh, instructive text such as the epistles. But um, one of the hard things about the Psalms is that some Psalms give us the context in which they're written, who wrote it, why they wrote it, when they wrote it, and to whom they wrote it uh, to. And some Psalms give us nothing. The Psalm we're in today is uh, one of those Psalms. Um, people such as Calvin uh, have long attested that this was indeed written by uh, King David, while other scholars and, and even the uh, authors of the Septuagint and Vulgate ascribe it to prophets Haggai and Zechariah at a most later post-exilic date. But despite our ignorance when it comes to the who, what, when, where, and why of the text, um, we know the purpose of the text, and that is of praise. The purpose of this psalm is to invoke praise within the writer himself as well as the rest of the people of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created to praise God. This is our, our purpose. And all that we do should be done in an effort toward that goal. Many can come through these doors or the doors of church for a number of reasons. They may enjoy the fellowship. They may be checking the box off of their religious duty for the week. They may be looking for healing, looking for blessing, looking for help in their marriage, help in uh, relationship with others. But the primary focus and our desires in coming here this morning should be that of praise of God. These last few months, we have, we have seen, uh, covered some great biblical truths. We have studied the doctrine of Calvinism and God's sovereignty and, and one's salvation in all things. We, we just got done with the book of Galatians and studied the doctrine of justification and how we are justified not by our own merits, but that of Christ. We have learned some great doctrinal truths, but we must not lose sight of the purpose of these truths. They are not to puff us up and that we may boast, as we heard last week. And yes, they are to instruct us in how are we to uh, live toward God and others, um, and during to, to instruct us in how to uh, refrain from heresy. But the purpose of these things is for us to know God all the more. The purpose of these things is to invoke an adoration and awe and should lead us to praise. To learn such biblical truths and not be affected when it comes to your praise is to miss the forest for the trees. It is my hope this morning that the Lord would stir our hearts, our affections toward him as we examine the psalm that instructs his people to praise, to stir in us a God-honoring praise just as it did for the psalmist that penned it. If you would, 
Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. And we will read and then pray and begin to examine our, our text. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On the very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we humbly come before you this morning. God, I am weak, powerless, and in and of myself hopeless to um, stir within us any real devotion, real affection for you. And so, Lord, I, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be with me this morning, that you would speak through me, that your word would be proclaimed faithfully and purely to your people, that you would edify us, oh God. And Lord, may, this not, may we not just be here to hear another sermon. May we not be here to just learn some truths of your word. As this psalm says, Lord, may we be here to give you the praise you so richly deserve. May that be the reason why we are here. Be with those who are in this room, who are listening to the sermon, Lord. I pray that, God, if there be anyone here who does not know you, who has not submitted and surrendered a life to your lordship, Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you would stir in them conviction, that you would lead them to a brokenness, that they would examine themselves this morning, and that you would lead them to repentance and to a saving knowledge of Christ. Convict us who belong to you. Edify us all for the glory and praise of Christ Jesus. And it is his name we ask. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the uh, Psalm, verse 1 in Psalm 146, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Here, I would like to examine the call to praise. Now, we will be examining some C's. And this was not, believe it or not, on purpose. I was just naming them, and I had kind of four points. And uh, she did five points. Um, but I, I had four points, and only one of them didn't have a, a C to it. So I changed it. I changed one. But the rest, that was all, that was all the Lord. So sorry, Rachel. I know you don't like it. But, <clears throat> but here we will examine the call to praise. Call to praise. Um, little, little background on it, little information we have. Uh, this, this psalm is called a, a praise psalm and is the first of the five, last five in the book of Psalms. 
um, and is often referred to as the final Hallel. Um, every psalm opens and closes with a praise to the Lord, a call to praise. The first praise is a call to praise as an exhortation to all who may hear it. The psalmist makes clear from the beginning what every man's position to the Lord should be, and that is a heart of praise and thanksgiving. Now, unfortunately, man reserves his praise elsewhere, does he not? Romans 1 tells us that man in his unrighteousness suppresses the truth of God and refuses to honor him, Romans 1.18. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Instead of directing their praise and thanksgiving to the one true God, they directed to idols made in the image of creation. And man is guilty of this today. Though we may not bow the knee to idols of stone and, and wood, we are often bowing the knee to the idols of self. We long to receive the adoration of others and receive the praise rightly reserved for God alone. Our hearts are prone to this, which is why the praise in a believer's life should be a high priority. For the more time our focus of thanksgiving and praise is aimed toward God, the less it will be aimed toward us. The second exhortation to praise is directed toward the psalmist himself. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. It amazes me how quickly and how easily I myself can forget to do this. Even when it comes to answered prayer. I was just this last week driving on the back roads uh, to, to a job site for, for work. And um, I saw that the sign, you know, um, in someone's yard. And I, and I saw rain at the bottom, right? So I was like, oh, here's another uh, pray for rain. And it was just after we got that big dump, that big downpour. Um, which seems to always happen. We get one good rain and then like... Are good for the rest of the year. Um, but I, I see the sign approaching, and I'm all, here's a pray, uh, pray for rain sign. And as I approach it, and I'm all, oh, funny thing is, we just got a bunch of rain. And as I approached it, I looked at it, I was like, oh, it says thanks for the rain. I didn't know they made those ones. Um, I'm all, did he run out there and just switch it out and put the, the other one in? I was like, because it was the day after. So, um, and if so, man, kudos, because, you know, I do, Lord, we need rain in the valley, Lord, and it is you who control these things. And, and, uh, but it's amazing how when it does rain or when we do have our, our prayers answered, even immediately sometimes, we're like, oh, that's cool. And we can go on and then say, you know what? I never even stopped to give God thanks and praise. How easy it is for us to forget to praise God. And, and the psalmist here says, praise God, oh, my soul. And, and for us, especially who, who belong to God, how easy we forget to praise God for our salvation, which is the ultimate reason to give him praise. As believers, it, it is our duty and responsibility and joy to offer praise to God. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, to forget to praise God is to refuse the benefit ourselves. For praise, like prayer, is one of the greatest means of promoting the growth of the spiritual life. It helps to remove our burdens, to excite our hope, to increase our faith. It is a healthful and invigorating exercise which 
quickens the pulse of the believer and nerves him for fresh enterprises in his master's service, end quote. The psalmist's commitment to praise is further demonstrated in verse 2. He says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The psalmist follows his exhortation of praise uh, with a vow, a vow to praise God, a commitment to praise God. And we see here just how important praise in a believer's life is. Praise is not mere feelings, uh, just mere euphoric feelings and, and um, uh, just being happy. Uh, praise is, it is a mindset. And, and that's what the psalmist is doing here. He is committing himself to a mindset and a lifestyle of praise. A, believer, a believer's life is one that must be characterized and committed to a lifestyle of praise and thanksgiving. This commitment is, is necessary because although we are encouraged to praise, exhorted to praise, praise, we are not always inclined to praise, right? There are times when we don't feel like praising, times when we're just having a rough day, week, month, year. But it is those times that the people of God must be most committed to this lifestyle of praise. And make no mistake, this does not mean that we put on a facade. It does not mean that just put on a smile and fake it. There is a time for rejoicing and a time for mourning. But as I said before, praise is not limited to an emotional feeling. We can still praise even in the times when it's hard. When we feel down. And if one needs any further proof of this, read the Psalms. A lot of them are written in times of distress. In times where hope felt lost. This vow of praise from the psalmist is reiterated in the second half of verse 2 by the statement, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The psalmist's desire to praise and worship God overflows within him that he must sing of God's glory and praise him. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, end quote. There's no better way of expressing this than through the gift of song. Music has an amazing capacity to evoke memories. It is why we can sing lyrics of over a hundred different songs, but cannot for the life of us recite poetry or the Gettysburg Address. Unless maybe Robin can probably do poetry. But isn't it weird that we can, we can sing the lyrics of songs we didn't even know we knew? That, oh, I mean, hundreds of songs. But when it comes to memorizing verses and things like that, it, it, it's tough, right? Music it stimulates our memories along with our emotions. Studies have found that the level of a hormone uh, called uh, oxytocin in the bloodstream is raised when people are singing together. Now, this is interesting because oxytocin is a hormone that is associated with empathy, 
trust, and relationship building. Music is a type of, of social glue, if you will, that brings people together in an atmosphere of trust and bonding. And this is especially true when you're creating music together. It is no wonder why the Word of God instructs us to use this powerful gift in the midst of one another directed toward Him, is it not? There are over a hundred different passages throughout the Bible exhorting God's people to sing praises to Him. Even in the New Testament, it's Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart, um, hearts to God. Ephesians 5.19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Psalm 105.2, Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wonderful works. We are instructed by God in his word to come together and praise God with songs. And I know this might be a point of contention, but I'm sorry, you cannot do this online. People say that, oh, I just watch my favorite pastors online. I just stay home. You cannot corporately worship God as instructed in his word behind a screen. And just hearing these things about the power of music and how it brings people together and, and invokes an atmosphere of trust and bonding, we can see the importance and why God instructs us to come together it is for our benefit. Again, song is just merely an outward expression of worship but not worship in and of itself. There are many different ways that we worship God, song being one of them, but let me just make this point. The songs and lyrics that we sing here should be a verbal expression of a lifestyle and mindset that you have and should be living out every other day of the week. Let me say that again. The songs and lyrics we sing should be a verbal expression of a lifestyle and mindset that you should be living out every other day of the week. Is Sunday the only day that you contemplate the goodness of God? Is Sunday the only day that we sing praises to God, that we give him the things that he so richly do? May we be like the psalmist who declares, while I have my being, with all my being, while I have breath, essentially is what he's saying, I will sing praises to God. While I have breath, I will use that breath to sing praises to God, for he is worthy. Verse 3 and 4 Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is not salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Here we're going to examine, we examine the call of praise, now we're going to examine the cause of praise. The psalmist exposes the futility of man here. If David was the author of this psalm, he would know best of the weakness of princes and kings. Son of man can be rendered as son of Adam, which was a common reference to humanity. But son of Adam, I mean, what better portrayal of human weakness and failure is there? The psalmist addresses where we might be tempted to direct our trust, security, and ultimate praise. And there is that link there that we praise that 
which we put our trust in. We must remember um, the original audience to this psalm was who? Israel. And Israel was so guilty of this on many different occasions, but um, a couple that I can think of right off the top of my head. First Samuel chapter 8 records of when Israel longs for them to have a king to be like the other nations. And First uh, Samuel 8 uh, records, it says, um, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me in being king over them. First Samuel 8, 5-7. through when the nations of Assyria threatened Judah, it was not to the Lord that they looked to, despite Isaiah's pleas for them to do so, but to the kingdom that once enslaved them. Isaiah 31.1 records, the Lord says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You can see in our world today how we can so easily put our trust in man, put our trust in candidates. I, I've never seen a better portrayal of that in, than in our society today, right? Flags waving, people shouting. Uh, society today identifies one another based on who they voted for last election. We say to ourselves, if we can just get the Senate, if we could just get the house, if we could just get the presidency. We place our trust in men in all sorts of areas, seeking to do what God alone can do. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking to have a more moral candidate in power. I'm not saying that. Um, there is wisdom in that. We should want to have those who have a morality be those in power. But the best of men are men at best. And when that doesn't happen, though, when your candidate doesn't get elected, how do you react? How we react reveals something about where some of our hope is going toward, does it not? There is no hope to be found in presidents, world leaders, or monarchs. The word here for princes, nobles, those in power, basically. Um, there is no hope of deliverance or salvation, the psalmist exclaims. In the end, when it comes to man, man and the world can offer only momentary, temporal feelings of security, but cannot offer us hope in that which plagues us the most. The psalmist gives his rationale for his previous statement, he says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. These, these princes, these nobles, are but men subject to change, corruption, and ultimately death. And even if you are to get a, a prince or a king or monarch who, who was noble, who was moral, and who was godly, when he dies, he's, he's gone and the people are subject to the one who takes his place. Uh, this is a sad tragedy we read in, in First and Second Kings. 
if you read in First and Second Kings, you you hear. Um, I think of the reign of uh, of Josiah, uh, a righteous king who who um, they uncover the law, and he sees that his his nation is breaking the Lord's commands, and he does his reforms and and turns Judah back to 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 Yahweh, and but after his death. We read um, in 2 Kings chapter 23, uh, Jehoahaz, and then after him, he only reigned for three months, but Jehoiakim, after him, we read the words, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't even have to wait till death now. The moment we get a president in office, whether good or bad, whatever, the moment he's out of office, the next one comes in and undoes everything that they did. It's pointless. Um, our hope is not to be found in them, but placed in the one true source of hope and faithfulness. The psalmist goes on and exclaims, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The psalmist here juxtaposes the unreliability of man with the faithfulness of God, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, God of Jacob is basically the God of Israel. Um, suffice to say, it's God of Jacob is a term um, that affirms the kingship of Yahweh. This, this God is the God of Jacob, God of Israel, who alone is the king. And the psalmist declares that it is in God that we can find this hope. And he lists why by, by listing God's sovereign role in creation here to further encourage his readers, his listeners, of the trust and hope that is secure in God. Blessed is he who places their trust in the one who created all things, the one who brought all things into being, the one who has intricate knowledge, interest, and ability in that which he creates should be the one best suited to care for it, should he not? It only makes sense that that which derives its existence from God, us, should also place their trust and hope in him as well. The heavens, the earth, the sea refers to the three-tiered understanding of the cosmos in, in uh, Jewish antiquity. God is the creator of, of all realms of creation. There is nothing outside of his scope. There is nothing outside of God's reach in his hand. There's nothing outside his sovereignty. There's nothing, as R.C. Sproul says, there is no maverick molecule out there. All things are under his control. All things are in his know and are according to his sovereign plan. This is the God, O Israel, in whom you should be placing your trust in. This is the God who we today, this morning, should be put, putting our trust in and praise toward it is the psalmist's desire here to invite his readers to trust in God by highlighting his omnipotence, his power, his might that is manifested in creation. And this makes sense for we do not trust in those we doubt in their abilities and strength. Look to this mighty God of Jacob who brought all things into his existence by merely speaking it. Where man offers no hope of deliverance, no salvation, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Isaiah 59.1 
by contemplating the greatness of God puts our troubles in perspective, does it not? It calms our anxieties, lays rest our fears, and brings about a peace. This is why the, the psalmist exclaims, blessed is he, happy is he who places his trust in the Lord. Now, it is a sad fact that we need to be reminded of this, but despite the fact that we all know this to be true, why does it take us so long before we bow our knees and go to God in times of trial, in times of despair? Why is it that in, in moments of weakness that we at times do the exact opposite of what we should do, do we not? We, we pull away from God. We pull away from church. We pull away from his word. We pull away from prayer. We pull away from worship and praise. We may not put our trust in the strength of kings, but we often fool ourselves to handle the trials of this life in our own strength. This might be why God allows despair to continue in your own life. It has been rightfully said that God will allow you to get knocked flat on your back so that at last you will finally look up. In the, Hebrews, in the Hebrew, these words are participles, meaning that they have a continuation verbiage to them. And, and this is important to note because it suggests that God has a continuing involvement after creation. He is not the, the clockmaker who winds up the universe and lets it go and stands back just to watch how it unfolds. He's not just a watcher who looks on to see what will happen, but does not intervene. God is, a, is the one who's continuing his involvement with his creation. Our God is the one who is fully involved, not only in the bringing about all of creation, but in sustaining it as well. These attributes and descriptions of God provides us assurance of placing our hope fully in him and offering him the praise. I love the psalmist does not spend his time pleading with his readers to trust in God because he's longing for communion with you. And so many churches portray God as this, just, I always call him the, the heartthrob teenager, right? The one that's just sitting there like, Man, Cameron's not praising me. He hasn't called. I really, really could use some praise here. He's not, the psalmist doesn't say, place your trust in God because he's lonely without you. Or place your trust in God because he wants to bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity. No, he sim simply states who God is through what he has done and the confidence that we can have in him because of it. This is why theology is so important. The deeper our understanding of God, who he is, and what he's done, the deeper our awe and praise of him will be. The deeper your theology will be, the deeper your doxology will be. Do doxology, the study of worship, doctrine of worship. True praise comes from reflecting on who God is. And who God is is reflected in what he's done. And where do we find that? Here. He is a God who keeps faith forever or who is faithful 
forever. This is revealed in the title, God of Jacob, the God who was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to his covenant, and has been faithful to the off their offspring, the nation of Israel, faithful to his promises. Unlike man who is susceptible to change, the God of Jacob is unchanging, Malachi 3, 6. And despite our unfaithfulness to him, he remains faithful. And his faithfulness and care goes down to the personal level, to the oppressed, robbed of justice and the hungry. Our God does not turn a blind eye to these injustices, nor a deaf ear to the needs of his people, which leads us to our next point, the contemplation of praise. Verse 8 and 9. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bound down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the so sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. As if the list of God's sovereign acts of creation were not enough, his power and sustainability were not enough to invoke praise in the people of Israel, the psalmist goes on and continues with the mercy of God that should culminate in our humble praise and adoration. The Lord is active in his creation and acts in righteousness and mercy. The next set of attributes complements the divine works of his hand. For power, strength, and might is not necessarily praiseworthy unless it is accompanied by righteousness. Just as perfect omniscience is lacking if it's not also accompanied by wisdom. Um, so to perfectly apply that knowledge. Our God is one who wields his power in perfect righteousness. The psalmist emphasizes the righteousness by describing the works of the Lord done on behalf of his people. The oppressed and, and descriptions that follow into verses 8 and 9 is explicitly directed to the nation of Israel, though it may be, applied, be true of all people. God's redemptive work of delivering his people out of bondage is clearly displayed in Israel's history. You can think of uh, their deliverance from Egypt and again with their Babylonian captivity. Blindness here is most likely a reference to Israel's deliverance as well. Uh, Isaiah 49.9 uses similar language when speaking of Israel's liberation from Babylon, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. Yahweh is the one that has freed those who were once in darkness. So one who is blind or in darkness is, is, is parallel with those who are um, in bondage. And these next descriptions are, are those who are or downtrodden, assaulted, and oppressed. Bowed down is another reference to the poor. Since we know that none are righteous, Romans 3, the righteous here is most likely synonymous with the poor, since the previous line deals with the poor and the one that after it deals with those who are in need or in poor. The sojourners, the widows, and the fatherless, the destitute, the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoner, the blind, the bowed down, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow encompass the majority of an individual's living in a time of antiquity. Opposed to the kings of the earth who, who turned a blind eye, who would tax and rob these people, the God, the God of Jacob, is one whose ear is not deaf to their cries and pleas. Now notice the psalmist's emphasis on describing the Lord here. Each one begins with the Lord, Yahweh. Each of these deeds of mercy is ascribed to God and God alone. And this flies in the face of Roman Catholicism that teaches you must go to certain saints. You've got to find the saint of, of, of poverty. You've got to find the saint of, 
of sight. Um, I try to even look online at the different saints that, you know, it was too much. I got lost in it, and I said, forget it. Um, the God of Jacob is a God who makes himself known to his people and acts on behalf of his people. And, and this is, and it's not in my notes here, but you know, if you read Isaiah, I, I believe chapter 45 through 48, God compares himself to the idols of the lands. And he basically says, I am a God. These, these other idols, they cannot speak. They cannot make known to you anything. They can reveal nothing to you. But I am a God who reveals myself to my people. I am a God who speaks. He is not a God who is hidden. And there is only one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. In contrast to the righteous, um, the, the psalmist addresses the wicked just as the righteousness of God is revealed in his divine mercies to those who trust in him, so it is also revealed in judgment against the wicked. Though there may be seen times that the wicked prosper, make no mistake, there will be a day when they will be judged and dealt with. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Psalm um, 73. And Psalm 73 is a, is a psalm... Um, of Asaph. And Psalm 73, he, he says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are uh, not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. What he's saying here is, man, my foot almost slipped. I almost wanted to be like the wicked. Why? Look at them. They've got it all. Here I am trying to honor God, and, and I feel like I just get hit time and time again. But look at the wicked. They seem to prosper. Have we not all felt like that at times? But it continues. Look in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. We can at times feel like God is absent, feel like everybody else has uh, the world at their feet and they care not about God. But God says, his word says, um, 
that there will be a day when judgment happens for those who are wicked, for all those who do not acknowledge God, for all those who hold their praise for themselves. There's a quote, I, I don't remember who said it, but it says, for those in Christ, this life is the closest to hell that you shall ever come. And for those outside of Christ, this life is the closest to heaven you shall ever come. Here we'll see in verse 10, the conclusion of praise. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Zion here is a, is a word that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It is synonymous with Jerusalem, the city of God, or, or the city of David, Psalms 87, 2 through 3. Um, Zion can also refer to the people of God. And uh, Mount Zion is a peak north of the city in which the temple was built and God's presence dwelt, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. The psalmist concludes with a sobering reality. The reign of God is everlasting. Where man's reign ends and is remembered not, the reign of God is everlasting. If we place our hope in God, we place our hope in that which is fixed for eternity. No powers of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Unlike man, the reign of God will have no end. And this is why we can spend our life praising God, because he remains faithful forever. And his reign endures forever from generation to generation. The psalm ends how it began as is fitting for the life of the believer is to be that is to be one of praise from start to finish. For he is worthy of praise of all times. Despite certain circumstances. Martin Luther writes about a time when he was sorely vexed and tried by his own sinfulness, by the wickedness of this world, and by the dangers that beset the church. So one morning he saw his wife. Katharina, dressed in mourning, all black. Surprised, he asked her who died. She says, do you not know, she replied. God in heaven is dead. Luther retorted, how can you talk such nonsense, Katie? How can God die? Why, he is immortal and will live through all eternity. Katie asked him, is that really true? Luther replied, of course and yet, she said, though you do not doubt this, you are so hopeless and discouraged. <laughs> Luther uh, quickly realized the contradiction of his belief and his behavior and overcame his anxiety. <laughs> How guilty are we of this? Those who claim the name of Christ, those who claim the title of Christian, those who say that we have our hope in God eternal? How often does our live, lives comprise more of complaints, grumblings, despair, hopelessness, rather than trust, hope, and praise? What message do we send this unbelieving world about God when the biggest, the smallest of trials bring, up, bring about absolute despair and hopelessness in us. Why would an outside world trust in a God in whom we ourselves display no hope in through our actions and conduct? 
our attitudes revealed where our true, our true hope lay. This psalm is one of praise, but notice, however, the situation of those listed in it. The poor, the downtrodden, trodden, the captive. This is a, a great reminder for us this morning. No matter what the political climate is, no matter who's in charge, no matter what mandates may come, no matter what trials we may face tomorrow, God's sovereignty, His power, His mercy, and goodness, His merit for our praise is not contingent upon our circumstances. The psalmist insists that the people of God are to be those who continue in praise. For the reign of God endures forever, even in circumstances that seem to deny it. We would do well in those times to remember that, this is, that God is still on his throne and still worthy of praise, no matter where you find yourself this morning. The psalmist's point is that God is to be praised by his people for who he is and in light of what he's done. This is the culmination, a final point, the, the culmination of praise. Looking back over the psalm, if this was true for them, how much more true is it for us on this side of the cross? For us today who are in Christ and have salvation in Him, whose sins are, are forgiven. For our trust is not in princes of this world, but in the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. It is He who is this, the one true Son of Man in whom there is salvation and forgiveness of sins, Luke 5, 24. Our hope is fixed upon Jesus Christ, for by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, and through whom all things are sustained, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Who feeds the hungry, Matthew 14, 20. But who is himself the bread of life, John 6, 35. He who is faithful and true and judges in righteousness, Revelation 19, 11. Our Savior who proclaims good news to the poor, proclaims liberty to the captives, recovers the sight of the blind, provides, provides freedom to those who are oppressed, Luke 4.18. He whose enemies will be made a footstool, 1 Corinthians 15.25, and whose reign shall be forever, Revelations 11.15. Christ, who is the precious, precious cornerstone of Zion, 1 Peter 2.6, and through his righteousness, sacrifice, burial, and resurrection, we who have placed our trust in him may enter Mount Zion into the presence of God and our Lord Jesus, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, through whom we are more than conquerors, Romans 8. This, this psalm is, is said to be a, a psalm describing the messianic kingdom. And when Christ came, we, we got a glimpse of that, did we not? In all the verses that I just read, Again, I ask if they were, if this was the mindset of those, of the psalmist, how much more should it be of us, this side of the cross? Richard Sibbs said, and this is a quote in your bulletins, 
quote, the whole life of a Christian should be nothing but praises and thanks to God. We should neither eat nor sleep, but eat to God and sleep to God and work to God and talk to God. Do all things to his glory and praise. Praise is an act of thankfulness and acknowledgement of the source of our joy. Praise should be the natural response when examining the goodness of God in Christ. And I ask if praise is absent from your life, perhaps it's because God is absent from your life. If praise is absent from your life, perhaps your focus is not on Christ, but your circumstances. We were made to praise. We were created to worship and praise God. And if we're not praising God, where is that praise being directed? Where is your hope being placed? Examine ourselves this morning. And for those of us who are in Christ, let us rejoice, as Hebrews 13, 15 tells us. Let us rejoice, quote, through him who let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips and acknowledging his name. To the God who spared not his son, but willingly gave him for our salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we, these truths that we know, Lord, there was nothing said up here this morning that we probably have not heard already. There was nothing that was uncovered, Lord, that we have not already heard. But God, may we not become dull of these things. May we not become like the church in Ephesus who forgot their first love, who went through the motions, but Lord, but their hearts were not in the right place. As we sing this last song together, Lord, may it come from a, a heart of adoration, a heart of appreciation, of gratefulness, O oh Lord, toward you, our God who is mighty, our God who is merciful, our God who saves when it costs you the most and when we were least deserving. How great are you, O oh Lord. How worthy of you of our praise. Set our affections towards you, not just this morning, not just as we sing the song, but as we go out into this world, may our lives be that of praise and appreciation and adoration of you for who you are and what you've done in Christ, where our true hope lay. If there be anyone here who does not know you, Lord, lead them to repentance. Lead them to a saving knowledge of your Son. Let them no longer hope in themselves or in, in this world, but find their hope where there is only hope, Lord, and that is in Christ Jesus. I pray, I ask these things, and we give you the praise. We give you the honor. We give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.